I think people are feeling in many ways less safe than they did before. And I want to be really clear when I talk to people, it seems like there's fear under this. And there seems like you're worried either for your safety or your children's safety. And why don't we talk about that as opposed to this particular issue? Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. The 2021 legislative session is in the books. The historic COVID-19 session was conducted entirely online over Zoom. Senate President Pro Tem Becca Ballant, a Brattleboro Democrat, was often alone in her office at the State House in Montpelier. The session was notable for the lack of rancor between Ballant, Speaker Jill Krowinski, and Republican Governor Phil Scott. That's partly a function of the fact that Vermont is receiving enormous amounts of federal COVID relief money. That has shifted the dynamic in the Statehouse from fighting over scraps to dividing up a bounty that will address big-ticket problems, such as expanding broadband coverage to the last mile, addressing the climate crisis, and building affordable housing. But not all is peaceful in the Statehouse. On Tuesday evening, Governor Scott vetoed two bills that would have allowed non-citizens to vote in Montpelier and Winooski, thus setting a new record for the number of vetoes issued by a Vermont governor. I spoke with Senate President Pro Tem Becca Ballant on Tuesday afternoon about the legislative session and about her plans for running for higher office in the future. Senate President Pro Tem Becca Ballant, welcome back to the Vermont Conversation. Thank you, David. Really appreciate the invitation. Let's start by talking about the high points and low points in your view of this last session and what you feel you've accomplished. Great question. There's a lot of different ways I could answer that. And so I will just say on a, on a macro, um, the, the low point was definitely starting the session, having just, you know, watched the storming of the U.S. Capitol and, and starting the session worried about how Vermonters were feeling about government and is, is government still working for them? Do we still have a functioning democracy? And I know that really, um, it rode me. I know the speaker and I talked about it a lot. It was one of the reasons why we worked so hard to make sure we had open lines of communication between us and with the governor. We wanted Vermonters to see a functioning government. So um, that was that was a hard point, is coming in under that dark cloud. Um, lots, of, lots of high points, I think. I, I want to just, just jump in there. Um, yeah, please, on that David, note, were you fearful that such a thing could happen in Vermont, where the state house is famously wide open to the public? I would, um, I would say there were definitely moments when I was fearful for myself, but also for the staff that works in the building, and we had a lot of conversations about what. What, do, what did people need in order to feel safe, to feel secure? What kind of uh, you know, security presence was helpful for them in, in feeling calm? And you know, just as a little aside, you know, we, we certainly talked about it within the Senate chamber. There's, there's only really one way in and one way out. There's no fire escape, you know? And, and so it is, It's hard for me to have to go there in my thinking. 
that did not feel comfortable for me because on the day in and day out, I love that our building is open. I love that you don't have to go through any kind of metal detector or security. It truly is the people's house. And it made me very sad when I was having conversations with staff about, okay, what would we do if someone stormed into the Senate chamber? And I don't let that ride me. I don't let that consume a lot of my time, but yes, definitely watching those pictures come out of DC and talking. I talked to Senator Leahy after that. I talked to Congressman Welch about what it felt like for them to be in there and realizing how quickly things got, got out of hand. We often think of ourselves as an exception to whatever it is, Vermont exceptionalism. And, um, there were certainly emails that we all got following the, the storming of the Capitol, where we knew there were Vermonters who absolutely supported the people who stormed the Capitol. So and did you, were you receiving threats? I wouldn't call them threats, no. More along the lines of, it's always along the lines of, we are watching you. Like, we are watching to make sure that you are upholding the Constitution, you know, our interpretation, our view of what the Constitution is. And that's new. That's a new kind of um, interaction that we're having with, with some constituents. And it is one of the reasons why, when I, if I could circle back around to what are some of the high points for me personally, is being able to bridge that chasm between me as an elected Democratic official and a constituent who clearly is coming um, from a you know a farther to the right Republican than say a, a Jim Jeffords or a you know or a Phil Scott, and trying to find the ways in which we can bridge that that gap and not shut each other out. Um, got one uh, just a little while ago about a, a man who wrote to me about how he's very concerned that our military and our National Guard may be getting training that he called woke training. Like, why are we training any of our soldiers to be more socially aware? And, um, and I got really curious about where is this coming from? Like, so I wrote him back and I said, so are you, did somebody send you a link about training that has changed? You know, when you talk about woke training, what are you, what are you referring to? And we've had a really interesting email back and forth. And it became clear to me that he has someone in his family who's serving in the military and he's concerned that they're not going to get the training they need to be safe. Right. And so for me, it's always about trying to figure out what's underneath it, you know, and I think coming out of the pandemic, coming out of four years of um, a very erratic, scary presidency, I think people are feeling in many ways, less safe than they did before. And I wanna be really clear when I talk to people, it seems like there's fear under this. So there seems like you're worried either for your safety or your children's safety. And why don't we talk about that as opposed to this particular issue? And so those moments have been high points and we just also got a lot done, David. Even the fact that we were doing it over Zoom, which as you know, as a journalist, not so fun, really not very exciting uh, to, to cover our work over Zoom. And 
um, we, we really buckled down and got a lot of work done for not just related to the pandemic, but other work that was important to people around um, making sure our voting rights were protected, making sure that women still had um, access to, to reproductive health choices. And so that feels great. That feels really, really good. If you had to pick a top two accomplishments that you think are most meaningful both to you and to Vermonters, changes that they will experience, what would those be? So I think when I look at the sheer uh, amount of money that we got from from the federal government, we have an opportunity now to really change the face of broadband in the state. And that impacts not just um, on the economic level, it's it's telehealth, it is you know, schooling. I mean, I saw it in my own house when we are, we're all trying to do work online. And, you know, and I live in town in Brattleboro and even we had our challenges. And so $150 million invested in broadband, you know, trying to get those bills through both chambers. It was, that was a lot of, a lot of work. Um, Again, I think I'm going to have to pick three because the other was investment in childcare, which is also related, something that we've been working on a lot for, um, families in the economy, but coming out of this uh, COVID-19 emergency, seeing how much the lack of, of affordable childcare was impacting families. And then the third was we made a huge investment in climate action, hundreds of millions of dollars. And that feels great after all of the work that we did passing the Global Warming Solutions Act. And then if you recall, the governor vetoed it. We overrode the veto. We started the session with the Scott administration really posturing, saying, we don't even believe your law is constitutional. That was within the first few weeks of the session. So to get to the end you know, of the session mid-May and seeing that both the governor and the legislature has decided collectively we're going to invest several hundred million dollars on climate action, that's huge. That's huge for Vermonters. Let's talk about how each of those will be felt by Vermonters. What does a few hundred million dollars in climate action translate into for everyday Vermonters? Yeah, it's really a great question. Some of that we don't necessarily know. We have blocked off a lot of that money saying it's dedicated to that. We're waiting for the recommendations from the Climate Council that will come out um, as we approach uh, the next session. We'll get an initial recommendation in December and then another, I believe, in March. But we can look at added investments in basic you know, weatherization of homes, which a lot of Vermonters now, not just spending more money, you know, on their heating fuel on, you know, drafty homes, but as we look on the other end of things, keeping homes cooler as we approach, you know, a, a Vermont that is impacted by, by climate change. So lots of people would like to weatherize their homes, don't have the cash on hand to do that. Looking at a lot more investments in, um, EV incentives, how do you get a family on a modest income into an electric vehicle to so save them money on uh, the, that fuel every month? Those are, those are real pocketbook issues for so many Vermonters. And so that's exciting. Building out the infrastructure for electric vehicles. So it's not a pie in the sky. It's not just people in Brattleboro or in Burlington or in Montpelier that can take advantage of that. So, um, those are a few a few of the investments that we're looking for on on the climate piece. Broadband, you know, this has been. I always joke, it's kind of like the white whale of Vermont politics. Who's going to finally, you know, land the big one? 
get those homes finally hooked up that are at the end of the line. And so that is exciting to think we're not necessarily going to be held back by the money. We'll be if we are held back, it seems like we're we'll be held back by our own ingenuity and be able to figure out how to do it. But the fact that we're going to be able to invest a big chunk of change in the communication union districts, which was really like that was a that grew out of people coming together and saying the the businesses that have that were supposed to hook us up and get us connected haven't done it. How do we make that happen for ourselves and for us as as elected officials to say we see you, we see the work that you've done, and we're going to give you money to finally get those those homes connected. So. So let's talk about the broadband piece, because I know this is a huge issue for many, many Vermonters, yes. not just in rural areas, you know, in no. my community, Waterbury Stowe, there are big chunks of terrain where people can't get online. Yeah. Um, so these communications district, and I know there were several different ideas debated. One yeah. was, what about throwing money at new technologies like Starlink, the the right. satellite internet, and the legislature settled on communications union districts. How is this not just going to be another bureaucracy that can't get you know a fairly complicated technology done? Why should we trust this to a community-based group? You know, it's such a good question, and I wish that I could tell you that it's a sure thing. I wish I could. I can't. You know, I'm going to I'm going to say that thing that, you know, we are all feeling as we invest this money in the CUDs. We absolutely hope that this is the right thing. We want to get it right. We're hoping this is the right thing. Um, I think I have faith because the both committees that it went through with the House and the Senate committees approached it with a combination of optimism and skepticism. Right. So. We have to try something different. What we've tried up until this point absolutely hasn't worked. We've been, can I say we've been screwed? Can I say that? Is that allowed on this? <laughs> yes, that's allowed. And I think a lot of people would be smiling and nodding their heads. Yes, right? And so, you know, let's give these communities a chance to try to, to sort this out. And one of the things that I said, I was on a program with Randy Brock the other day, who sits on finance. And for those of you who don't know, uh, Senator Brock is a Republican. He sits on the finance committee. He cares a lot about this issue. And we both said to the person asked, well, you know, are you afraid that you might get it wrong? And we both said, yes, we are. We are afraid we're going to get it wrong. But we have an opportunity to revisit. That's the beauty of the citizen legislature. We're going to be back in January. We're going to get a report back. We're going to find out how it's going. And we're going to figure out, are we investing the right amount of money in the right things. And so this is not a, we set it up, it goes unchecked. And it's something that I've talked about with the governor as well. It could be that the money that we put up, $150 million, isn't going to be enough, that we're going to have to figure out how to invest more money, either from this federal infrastructure bill that we anticipate in the fall or swapping out some, some other money to put more money into that into that investment. So, um, yeah, I wish that I could tell you it's absolutely going to solve our problem. I feel more hopeful now than I've ever felt. And this was one of the re one of the issues that I ran on initially uh, in going into the Senate was lack of connectivity uh, and broadband connection here 
in Wyndham County. I've got towns who people can't sell their homes because they're not hooked up to um, the internet. They don't have cell service. So it, it matters to me on a personal level because I, I talk to these friends and neighbors. Okay. Well, I mean, we could we could spend the whole time on broadband, yes, but we we'll could. move along. I think you guys thought about a few other things as well. Yeah. Um, there are help wanted signs up, it seems, in every single business in my town, I assume in yeah. your town, and we keep hearing that there are not enough workers. Yeah. What's going on? Well, we had this problem even before the pandemic. So that's one thing I just want to remind people of. Um, and people are making different choices now because they can telecommute much more easily than they could. We were just actually talking about it this morning. I was meeting with our uh, HR person who we've recently hired from the state house. And she said, look, we're going to be competing in a totally different way now for attorneys, for committee assistants, for people that can work remotely, because we're gonna be competing with businesses or legislatures in Colorado and in Maryland because they can Zoom in. And she said, so I need you to be thinking about this. We had a shortage before, and now we're competing, not just regionally, but nationally. And so very much on my mind. Um, it has been, uh, something top of mind for me for the last 10 years here in Wyndham County was part of the workforce development group at the Brattleboro Development Corporation. It's kind of how I got interested in the whole issue of, of workforce. We know that we've got a huge swath of Vermonters who are um, these incumbent workers who are about to essentially graduate out. They're going to they're gonna retire. And we know there aren't enough people in the pipeline to fill those jobs. And so again, it isn't new. It's feeling more acute, um, I think, because the pandemic has shown a lot more cracks to a lot more people. I think that the way forward for us in Vermont is to continue on this path of making Vermont a place that is attractive to families and to people of color. We know that there is a finite amount, like if you just look at demographically, the finite amount of workers out there. We know many of those workers are people of color. If we do not start making our state more attractive to people of other um, cultures, nationalities, backgrounds, we are going to be seeing, uh, I think, much more of a workforce shortage in the future. And so I'm excited about the work that we're doing in the legislature on this issue, really looking into the issue of racial justice, looking into you know, how do we do training even within our legislature to make sure that people are, are wrestling with these issues? Um, but we have to really think about this dynamic sometimes that we have in Vermont, which is the us and them, the insider, the outsider, who's a real Vermonter, who's not. And that doesn't serve us well. It really doesn't serve us well. And I, it's not just around race and it's not just around age. I think it's about, you know, are we people that are willing to think about work differently, think about our towns differently? Um, I was giving an interview to somebody the other day about this tension around that seems to be the same few people in a town that serve on all the boards, right? What are we doing within those towns to mentor the next generation of leaders within our towns? And 
I mean, I could, again, we could have a whole other conversation about like governance and is it working for this next generation of people coming up? Well, and then we have people who are elected, BIPOC people who are elected, people like Representative Kaya Morris. Uh, We also hear that uh, a number of, uh, you know, people who then feel that the hostility directed towards them because of their profile as leaders of color. Uh, right. that it becomes intolerable. Uh, they Absolutely. become targets. How do you change that dynamic? Yeah, that is not uh, an easy dynamic to change. So there, there is the, the work that we have to do at the state level around data collection, figuring out why do we have um, inequities when it comes to incarceration, when it comes to the way that criminal justice deals with um, citizens, but there's also the work that needs to be done on the local level in doing training around diversity, equity, and inclusion on select boards and school boards. And, um, but you can't, you can bring people to water, you can't make them drink, right? My, my wife and I talk about it a lot. She's been working really hard for the last work to do de- um, diversity, equity, and inclusion work at, at the law firm that she works at. And they had their very first meeting the other night, they're reading the book cast together and talking about what does that mean to talk about systemic racism within Vermont. And those are, those are hard conversations. Those are um, vulnerable conversations. And I think we need to get more, um, we need to give each other more permission to have hard conversations. I saw that this year in the Senate, that there were issues that came up around uh, race and gender identity and sexuality that made some of my colleagues really uncomfortable. And it was clear to me that part of my job as pro tem is to equip them with the tools to not turn away from those conversations, but to engage in those conversations in a way that feels if not safe, because you know I don't want people to feel too comfortable. I want them to continue to, 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 to really examine themselves in the place that they have. Um, but we have to, as leaders, be willing to take it on as well. And I think some are more. Yeah, yeah let, go ahead. let me ask about, um, you know, you tweeted, speaking of the personal, you tweeted today, uh, quote, as a young person, I knew that I wanted to serve in public office but I also knew that being openly gay meant the path would be difficult. Years later, I fulfilled my dream, serving as the first openly gay woman in the Vermont Senate. Happy hashtag Pride Month 2021. I wonder if you could just say a little bit about um, what has been the difficulty of being an openly gay uh, public official um, and where you feel you're at now in the way that you are received? Yeah. Oh, I think about this so much, David, because I think my struggle, which is the struggle of a lot of people who have never seen themselves on the, on the inside, always on the outside, which is you have to deal with a lot of colleagues who believe that we've all have this, we've all had the same experience that, that growing up in this country um, you know, if you, if you grew up at a particular time, a particular place that you're going to have had the same experience. Now, of course, any person of color will tell you that's 
ridiculous, right? Uh, but I think we forget that that's also ridiculous for women and for people who um, identify um, as, as gay or queer. And I've had to say that to a number of colleagues over the years, which is literally your experience has not been my experience. Like, let's just start from there that, you know, I had teachers tell me that I shouldn't be in politics because I was a woman. I had people tell me, you know, that essentially I could never be myself as an openly gay person, you know, in the world that that wasn't going to happen or I wasn't going to be a a mom or I wasn't going to be a teacher even. Right. And so when you grow up having all these limitations put on you, um, when you finally get to a place where you have a little bit more voice and a little bit more power, like you feel, I think this absolute desire to use it for good, because you know that if you've been struggling with that, there are other people who also walk through those doors, whether they're, um, you know, whether they're in the legislature, whether they're in the public or whether they are, you know, working uh, as an attorney. It was a perfect example, David. Okay. I know that there are men and women who work across state government that have had to sit through really uncomfortable conversations because a house member or a senator said something really um, uncomfortable or inappropriate because of their gender identity or, or because they're queer. And so when you have someone in office like myself who is seeing it through those eyes, I circle back around with those people. And I say, I heard that. And I know that that was uncomfortable for you. And I'm gonna let you know now that I'm gonna follow up with that Senator or I'm gonna follow up with the Speaker of the House so she can talk to to her House member. Those are the kinds of things that happen when you have different people in those seats. And- um, We're running short on time. I wanna talk about another seat. Um, that has also notably lacked diversity in Vermont. Um, There has been widespread speculation about the possible retirement of Senator Leahy uh, and how suddenly the whole jigsaw puzzle starts to move around. I appreciated your candor in a Vermont Digger article where you said, yes, if Congressman Welch, um, if his seat opens up, if he were to run for Senate, you would run for for Congress. Can you say a little bit about your future plans? Yeah, I'm happy to. Um, Yeah, it's it's interesting. I've gotten a lot of comments from people about about my candor, and I I just can't imagine answering it any other other way. And and so I think people can spot a dance a mile away when you're you're trying to say that you're not going to do something. I never know what's around the corner. I don't know what's going to happen. You know, I've got I've got two kids. uh, One. Uh, in uh, junior high, one about to finish elementary school. I know that my spouse is very supportive of me. And so if it happens that uh, one of the seats uh, opens up, you know, whether it's Senator Leahy or if, if something else should happen, I would seriously consider it. And then I'd have to have conversations with my family about, you know, does that, that work for us? I want to be really clear that I feel like our... Um, our team at the congressional level is doing a really good job. 
And so I, I've been asked, you know, would you, would you ever run against uh, one of the incumbents? And I will just say, you know, absolutely not. It, it is not the same kind of situation that you have with an AOC or an Ayanna Presley where their districts have changed so dramatically that, you know, there is, they're not necessarily being, you know, represented by, um, well, by the, the, the people in office because of how the district has changed so much. That being said, I know that there is pent up demand for us to have some diversity, you know, within those seats. I do think it's healthy for, for Vermont um, to have a diversity of perspective and opinion. And so we'll just have to see what happens. I, I know that I am called to this work and I'm curious to see what, what that means. And, um, you know, one thing I'd love to have a conversation with uh, you about, David, is this book that I'm obsessed with called High Conflict by Amanda Ripley. And um, I've been thinking about it a lot in terms of as this has come out and, and the press is asking me what I might consider doing, a lot of people have said, well, we, we think we know who you are and you have a big heart in the way that you approach the world. And, you know, do you really want to go to DC? Cause it seems like such a cesspool of high conflict. And so I've been like delving into this question, which is, um, is it the right place for, for me? Can I do my best work there? Can it, can it be changed? Can this place be changed? Um, I've certainly had conversations with both um, Senator Leahy and Welch over the years about their work. I think that um, they both have been able to figure out how to navigate that without losing who they are. So I, I have hope, um, but we'll see what happens. I'm, I live in a place of curiosity, so. <laughs> okay, well, uh, Becca, Senator Becca Ballin, I wanna thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you as always, David. Always like it. Thank you. Becca Ballant is the Senate President Pro Tem in Vermont. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all programs at vtdigger.org slash Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>